according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth, and we are going to grow in the Word of God. The Bible will get us there, Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 13 today. Last week, I think we dealt with 10, 11, and 12, and the last of the items there, of course, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. Pride goes before destruction, we see in other passages. But humility goes before honor. And that's it. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. There's about half a dozen of these verses in Proverbs that are very similar in how they're expressed. Slight variations in some of the emphasis that they make. Uh, but the underlying ideas are the same. So uh, we want to avoid pride. We want God to root it out, root it out of our soul, root it out of our thinking. Let the Word of God reshape our thinking because the more Christ-like we become, the more humble we become. It's just that you can't escape it. Uh, Jesus is the pinnacle of humility. And so uh, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, the uh, humility comes with that. Pride is the great enemy of that. Verse 13, as we gain new ground here this morning, says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. I mean, how stupid. You think you can give an answer, you don't even know what the question is yet. And uh, you think you're smarter than everybody. You think you have all the answers. And it's just a blasphemous claim of human omniscience. And none of us have it. (laughs) None of us have it. The human know-it-all is... uh, highly irritating, and the Scripture has a bit to say about that. So we'll, uh, we'll be addressing that here this morning. Before we do get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask for our Father's uh, blessing upon our time. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning just so thankful that you are the God of grace that you are, and that in your grace you have blessed us with another day. And so we are using this day in your will, in your good pleasure. We're using this day in obedience. Father, you would have for us to assemble together. You would have for us to receive instruction. And so here we are. And as your word commands us to do, we present ourselves before you as workmen, needing not to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. So Father, open the eyes of our understanding. Rightly divide the word on this day. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we've had point one, which was verses one through nine, with the subpoints A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and we had point two, which was uh, verses 10, 11, and 12, where we had the subpoints A, B, and C. The Lord Himself is a tower, temporal wealth offers the pseudo security. I tell you, there's much of that. In fact, some of this came up this past week as well. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. And uh, talking to various folks, not here, but beyond here, whereby uh, they've learned that uh, that money will let you down. And that if you have a false security, uh, sometimes it's the best thing in the world because it can wake you up. And uh, if you have a house fire, for example, and you lose everything, well, that's uh, it's a good reminder that uh, you know we're laying up treasure in heaven, that we should be heavenly minded and not, uh, not wrapped up in the things of this earth. So uh, in any event, I'm thankful we had this uh, principle that we looked at uh, last week and the week before. And then pride that leads to destruction, but humility produces honor. And in, if you're looking for honor in this life, if you want the accolades, if you want the praise and glory that this life can offer, uh, you're looking for the wrong thing. You know, we want the, we want the accolades to come, the honor to come uh, when, when we hear it from our Lord, when we hear well done, good and faithful servant. And that's going to require humility. And uh, that's what's going to produce the honor in that regard. All right, predetermined conclusions. <laughs> predetermined conclusions are the antithesis of wisdom. They are folly and shame. Proverbs eighteen thirteen. This is point three in the outline. And we'll have subpoints A, B, and C as we expand upon it and kind of develop these principles here this morning. But predetermined conclusions. In other words, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's already made up. <laughs> it's a pre-de- predetermined conclusion. I know what the answer is already, so I'm just going to find the justification to get there. I'm going to find the verses that will let me reach that conclusion I want to come to in the first place. And, uh, and you're a fool if that's your approach. 
he who gives an answer before he hears. And so um, that really shows an impatience. It shows a uh, lack of, uh, it shows a self-centeredness. It shows that you don't have time for the question. Uh, the person is taking too much of your time already. Just get out of here. Here's your answer. Go away. And uh, just a predetermined answer. You give an answer before you hear or you just assume that you know. None of us are equipped to do that. Only God is equipped to do that. It is called a folly and a shame. And even though they think that they're the smartest guy in the room, they're not as smart as they think they are. And uh, at some point the God of truth is going to call them on it and at some point God's wisdom will make foolish the wisdom of this world and, and will put on display how, uh, how foolish this person is. And so uh, it's the antithesis, of what, it's, the, it's the virtual opposite, the polar opposite of God's wisdom. God's wisdom would have for us to listen, to consider the question, to search the scriptures to find the answer, not just assume you know the answer, uh, to in your questioning, in your searching for the truth, um, be willing to say, well, this is my, and, and we all do it. I think we all have first impressions based upon past teaching. There's nothing wrong with that. But you nevertheless need to stop and you need to humble yourself before the Scriptures and say, is this what this verse says? And don't prejudge anything, see. And uh, that's, that's, I think that's the, the essence of intellectual honesty. That's, the, that's to be fair and humble before the Word of God and don't just assume. And that's the, the, the biggest thing, uh, danger of all, is that we make an assumption because we think we know what it says. Uh, but we're confusing it with a parallel text. We're confusing it with a verse in Ephesians. And so we misread a verse in Colossians because as we're reading it, we're just rapidly racing through and we just we say, oh, well, we know what that says. And we actually don't know what that says. We are misreading it because our memory is betraying us. Our memory is is actually confusing it with a different text. So stop. Just look at it. Read it for what it says. And if you have the capacity to read the Greek and the Hebrew, go read what that says because there's where more assumptions can come in. You can read a verse, you can see that the word is love and you just assume, well, it's going to be agape. Of course it's agape. It wouldn't be phileo. And then uh, you, you tootle on about your business and then you finally decide, you know what, maybe I should double check that. You go and you open up your Greek Bible and, oh, ooh, I was wrong. Wow. I had made an assumption. I had given an answer before I heard, or I had, I had uh, made a statement before I, I knew the facts. And, uh, and so all of these things, I think we're all subject to, since uh, we're all human, we're subject to human error, and uh, we need to minimize those as best as we can by following divine procedures, okay? Because the divine procedures will help us to overcome human error, I'll tell you that. So uh, anyway, this is what we're looking at here. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is a folly and a shame to him. And neither of those words is good. We've talked about different shame expressions already uh, from uh, verses 1 through 9. You remember that when we discussed uh, the different shameful uh, verses that were there. But first of all, let's understand what this really is. God is the one who knows what we need before we even ask, not us. God knows what we need before we even ask. And, and this, uh, no one denies this. This is true. We know this. Um, maybe we don't know all of these passages, but they're worth learning. They're worth uh, storing away in your quiver if, uh, in fact, you need to use it on, on some occasion. God knows what we need before we even ask. And um, we have this, I think, uh, Matthew 6, 8 So really you can take Matthew 6, 8 and put it side by side with Proverbs 18, 13 and you see why this is such a problem. Matthew 6, 8. Verse 7 says, uh, when you are praying do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do for they, <clears throat> they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You don't have to keep asking, keep asking, keep asking. There are other passages, though, that speak of persistence and the benefit there. But it's th this passage, though, is talking about the mindless repetition, which uh, is part of pagan worship, part of, 
other, uh, other things, meaningless repetition. They suppose they will be heard for their many words, as if if you just go long enough, eventually you get the attention of your God. Well, our God's not like that. We have His attention all the time, every time. And He knows what we need before we ask. He's been waiting for us to get around to asking that uh, what took you so long, right? So um, anyway, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is a, a prerogative of, of omniscience. This is the prerogative of God with His foreknowledge. None of the rest of us have this. And so to try to claim that we have some kind of capacity to apply Matthew 6, 8 ourselves is, is just blasphemy. Who are we? Who do we think we are? We're not God. And, and really that's, that's what I think this verse is driving at when, when, again, we're looking at Proverbs 18, 13 this morning. He who gives an answer before he hears. God can do that. You can't. I can't. How do I give an answer before I hear? And in some cases I've got to hear it more than once. In fact, I probably need to hear it a couple times. And if it's a husband and wife, then oh my, I might be getting different stories from different parties. <laughs> you know, I hear one version of things and oh man, that's, that's terrible. And then I hear the other side of things, oh well wait a minute, <laughs> there's more to it than that. Half of what the other person told me wasn't even true. Okay, and now I'm starting to wonder about half of what this person's telling me. And so I've got two sides to this story and really there's probably three, four, five sides. <laughs> man. And, the, and thank God that He knows all of this. <laughs> right? He knows all of this before anybody asks. He knows when people are asking with the right motivations, when they're asking with the wrong motivations. God knows all of this in His foreknowledge. And the, the, uh, the beautiful thing about His foreknowledge is it's, uh, it's more than we think it is. God's omniscience, He knows everything and everything is more than you think it is. Because everything is more than just everything that is. It's more than all reality. It's all reality at all times. It's all reality from the alpha moment to the omega moment and every moment in between. Everything that is true right here, right now, and everything that's ever been true at all points in the past, everything that will be true at all points in the future, and and it's even more than that. Because it's also all of the possible things that could have happened. The possible things that might still happen. All of the, the uh, how things would have turned out otherwise if other choices had been made. God knows all those as well. And so they're not true, they're not actualities, but they're potentialities. They could have been true under other conditions. Am I making sense? You know what I'm talking about? The should have, we all have them. We all have the should have, would have, and could have in life. But, you know, had we made other choices, what else would have been different? What else would have happened? God knows all of those. Every last one of them. And to me, that's just an awesome, awesome God. And praise Him for the, the course of our life that He shepherded, that He steered us. You know, He won't coerce our volition, but boy, He can, he can manage the circumstances in such a way that even have a, have a fish swallow you and puke you up on a beach somewhere. If He doesn't want you in Tarsus, you notice, he didn't coerce Jonah's volition. He just swallowed him with a whale and spat him on a beach and said, all right, go to, go to Nineveh. <laughs> and eventually, yeah, eventually Jonah said, all right, Lord, my volition now is going to choose to go to Nineveh. Because God does not coerce volition. But boy, he does arrange our circumstances. Thank God for that. Let's look at some of these other passages. Genesis 24 and, and so many of these are, are easy to look at, they're fun to preach, they're, I mean you can take them and teach them in a, in a family devotion or in a home Bible study. Genesis 24. And uh, we touched upon this briefly in the Hebrews class because we discussed the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs living in the promised land, had they wanted to return, they could have. Abraham could have returned to Ur of the Chaldees and he could have returned to his former manner of life. His father was an idol worshiper and his family was connected with that. And uh, had the patriarchs wanted to return, they could have. And that's a statement that Hebrews makes. But as it is, they were looking for a country not their own and they were not thinking of that land from which they came. And uh, tremendous principles of faith there in Hebrews chapter 11. And this chapter includes some of those details because Abraham is very insistent 
that the servant has to go get a wife for Isaac and bring her to Isaac's location. In other words, you go, the servant goes to Padan Haram and he finds a bride for, for um, Isaac and brings her back. See, does that bother us? Arrange marriages? <laughs> it's not really our culture. But, uh, you know, send your servant to, I mean, I can send my son to get milk at HEB or something, but I'm not going to send him to, to fetch a husband for, for his sister. That's, uh, that's not our culture. All right. Anyway, let's get through this story because the, the uh, seriousness of this when he says, do not let my son go back there is, uh, is curious to me. I think Abraham was well aware of Isaac's proclivities and weaknesses and, and, and things and maybe even you know, glimpses of what Isaac at the end of his life was, was not, he tried to bless Esau and because he was blind he, he blessed Jacob instead but he tried to bless Esau and, and he, had some, he had some issues there. Alright, all of that is beyond the point of what we're looking at this morning related to omniscience. And so um, as he's approaching and he's praying, praying the whole way there, praying the whole way there. This is a neat kind of a, a, a procedure for divine guidance that we could emulate even ourselves. So um, Abraham tells him in verse 6, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and who swore to me saying to your descendants I will give this land he will send his angel before you and will take a wife and you will take a wife for my son from there and uh, so the whole way that he's going now he has his promise from Abraham and really it's a prophecy from Abraham and so as he's going uh, verse 10 the servant took 10 camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his masters in his hand if you're going to go shopping for a wife you need a lot of money. <laughs> All right. Because he's not going to get a cheap girl, he's going to get an expensive girl. All right. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And that's a helpful hint if you ever have to do that. Now verse 12. He said, O Lord, the God of my master. Now this prayer Look at this prayer, I love this. O Lord, the God of my master Abraham. So he knows who Yahweh is, and he knows that he's the God of Abraham. He understands the Abrahamic covenant. Please grant me success today and show chesed, show loving kindness to my master Abraham. This is his prayer. So grant me success, show chesed to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring. Now this is where it gets very practical. So we can start our prayers, of course we're praying to God the Father, and we can start our prayers mindful of the Word of God. We can start our prayers uh, identifying you know, who God is, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, we can, we can uh, identify in the Word of God, you're the God of Abraham. You have made certain promises with respect to the Abrahamic covenant which means that you need a son and your son needs a son and if your son's going to have a son he needs a wife. That's what I'm doing here, Lord. Okay, all of this is in, in this prayer. At least in his thinking as he voices these things. So grant me success today and show chesed, show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now, here, I believe this is valid. I believe this is um, this is not, uh, we're not tempting the Lord. We're not, um, let me explain what we're talking about here. When you're in prayer and you have your circumstances, there's nothing wrong with telling the Lord, here I am and here's what's going on. Okay? Because He knows that. He knows where you are and He knows what's going on. And He's in charge of these circumstances. And so uh, you may be, uh, you know, maybe it's not picking a spouse. Maybe it's it's uh, it's a job interview, or it's it's just something. You're you're somewhere. And say, Lord, here I am. I'm in this job interview, uh, and uh, and you know better than I do, Lord. 
because to me it seems like this is this is the perfect job in the world and i and i'm i'm not going to lie to you lord i i'm excited about this job however my excitement about this job might be um blinding me to certain things i don't want to see so father i'm asking that you take control of the circumstances and if this is not your will then close the door. If this is not your will, then I pray this interview goes terribly. I pray, you know, whatever the case might be. Ask Him to control the circumstances so that you don't make the wrong choice. Say, I want to make the right choice. And there's nothing wrong with telling Him, this is the choice I'm on the verge of making. I'm, Father, I believe, you know, uh, this, is, this is what I intend to do. And you're asking for a fish. He's not going to give you a snake. You're asking for a loaf of bread. He's not going to give you a stone. You say, Lord, I, I think this is the girl I'm going to marry. I think this is who you've designed for me. I think this is my helpmate. This is who I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And, if I'm, and, and, and so, Father, I'm telling you, <laughs> this is the choice I'm on the verge of making right here. So uh, you've got to control it. If I'm wrong, here's the thing, if I'm wrong, close the door. Make it clear. Okay? Have her tell me no when I ask her. Or whatever the case may be. Okay? Because what you're doing there, and here's what you're doing, you're doing what Jesus did when he said, not my will but thine be done. So Father, I want this, I think this is your will, but if I'm wrong, then, then uh, overrule. Okay, Send the storm, send the whale, spit me up on a beach, do something, <laughs> Father, to keep me from, because I don't want to make a wrong choice. I want to make the right choice. Back to the servant, he said, He's not named in this chapter. We, we, we think he was Eliezer because of a previous chapter, but in any event. Um, he says, I'm standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink and I will water your camels also, may she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. And that's a pretty specific request. Right? That's a pretty specific request. And that's, uh, it's not going to happen by coincidence, you don't think. Right? If, you, if you're phrasing it like that, you're leaving it with the Lord. You know, and, but do you believe by faith, do you believe God's in charge of who the girls are in this town and which ones are going to come out at what time and who's going to get there first? And who's going to be gracious enough to, uh, to respond to a stranger like this? To offer to water the camels as well? Okay? In other words, I mean, it just seems like this is, this is the kind of girl that would work in a Chick-fil-A drive-thru. Right? Not, not a uh, Taco Bell drive-thru. Okay? That's a different attitude when you're going through the Taco Bell drive-thru. But when you're in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, they're pleasant, they're friendly, they're, they're gracious, they're generous, they say my pleasure, they're sweet, because they're paid to do that. They're, they're trained to do that. They're, that's the culture of that, uh, of that establishment. All right. And so God is in charge of the circumstances, and this is the time of day that the the girls are coming out, and uh, and so this the faith of this servant is such that he says, you know, God, you're in charge. You can determine which girls come out at which time in what order. And uh, so it's not some kind of cosmic coincidence; it's divine guidance. That Father, the woman you've designed, there's a girl in this town you've designed for for Isaac. I don't know who she is yet. But I, and, 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 and he needs to find out who it is. So this is what he's doing in his prayers. So, before he had finished speaking, notice that? Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Before he had finished speaking. <laughs> in other words, God knows what you need before you even ask. And before he had finished speaking, God was way ahead of him. Here comes Rebecca. First girl out of the, out of the shoot, or whatever. 
out of the town. Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. Well, isn't that a coincidence? (laughs) No, it's not a coincidence. It's the sovereignty of God. It's divine guidance. He's in the right town. He's found the right clan in that town. And, and that may not be the easiest thing to do because it was only a generation prior when they had emigrated from Ur up to Haran. And so the bulk of the population of Haran would not have been uh, of the clan of, of Terah, Abraham's father. But it just so happens this is of the right clan in the right tribe in the right nation. And uh, she came out with her jar on her shoulder. So the girl was very beautiful. That's a kind of icing on the cake. That's just bonus. A virgin. No man had relations with her. She had went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please, let me drink a little water from your jar. And by the way, there's more doctrine involved with this too as well. The there can't be any doubts related to the Abrahamic covenant. can't be any doubts related to the seed of the woman, related to the coming of the Christ, related to that this, is, this virgin is going to be um, carrying Isaac's child, not somebody else's child that, that uh, she entered into the marriage with. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please, let me drink a little water from your jar. And this is the answer to prayer right here because, you know, she could freak out and say, who are you? And, and uh, doesn't do any of that. But she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, notice there's a little bit of a delay there. So he's drinking. I think he's still praying. He's waiting. Well, maybe this isn't the girl. But when she had finished giving her a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. Ha ha! Right? What are the odds of that? So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw. She drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Now, look at that. Isn't that something? He asked for it. He got it. But he's still not making assumptions. He's still praying about it. He said, all right, Lord, this is what I asked, what you provided. And he's in silence, he's waiting. Does he know her name yet? Does he know her family yet? So he's going to get confirmation. So when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels. Oh my. And he said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And all this is, of course, propriet- uh, very proper, very much in keeping with the, the customs of that day. So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He's got his confirmation. He hears these names and he knows this is the right clan. The right girl, the right clan, the right uh, magic words with the, I'll water your camel also. The answer to prayer. So he bowed low and he worshiped the Lord and he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his chesed, his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. So he knows he's in the right town, in the right house, with the right girl. So the girl ran and told her mother's household. Let's see, how much more of this do I want to read? I want to get down to verse 45. We know the story, right? Okay. And then uh, comes back, recounts it telling the story here to um, her family. And then again, verse 45, before I had finished speaking, in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder 
and went down to the spring and drew. And I said to her, please let me drink. And so uh, again, that, that term, before I had finished speaking, this is God's joy. I, I think God loves this. He, I mean, he gets personal enjoyment at how awesome he is. And I think it thrills him more than anything when he has his answer ready to go and he can kind of interrupt us a little bit before the end of our, our request, before the end of our prayer. All right. Just a little joy that a father can have when uh, he can spring a surprise like that. Second Kings chapter 20. Second Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah. In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Does that mean Isaiah was a false prophet? No, he's a true prophet. Many times a prophecy is given in absolute language, but there's always a built-in uh, caveat that should you repent, God will is is uh, merciful. God will relent, and uh, such as you know proclaiming to Nineveh that you're going to be destroyed unless you repent. And um, many times there the unless you repent is left unstated, and yet it's always implicit. So set your house in order; you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, "Remember now, O Lord." I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. One of the biggest reasons for his weeping? He's in the line of Christ and he doesn't have a son yet. <laughs> if he dies tonight, what happens to the, to the seed of the woman promise? What happens to the Davidic covenant? What happens to the Abrahamic covenant? What happens to all these promises? And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him saying, turn around, (laughs) return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold I will heal you. On the third day you will go up to the house of the Lord. So a dead guy gets to come back on the third day. I will add 15 years to your life and I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Isn't that beautiful? All right. Then uh, Isaiah sixty-five twenty-four. There's a, um, starting in verse 17, it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in, uh, in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. I'm going to a funeral a couple of Sundays from now, and the young man was 25, almost 26. He was in the Boy Scout troop with my son. And and we think, oh, how young. And uh, his girlfriend will be there. I don't know that they were quite engaged yet, but I think it was headed towards an engagement and a sweet-looking girl that well, God's got another plan. God's got another plan. And we think, oh, he was so young. Or a child that doesn't even reach uh, adulthood. And we think, oh, so young. Well, in the millennium, it, that's going to be up to age 100. At age 100, we're gonna, you know, the 99-year-old dies and go, oh, he didn't quite make it to 100. So uh, what a scale. That's, that's going to be a little bit different than what we're accustomed to today uh, related to that. Of course, this is in the millennium because on the new earth there is no death. This is a millennial passage and uh, issues there. Anyway, um, they will not, uh, let's see, verse 21, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. 
They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. You know, it's just wrong. It's evil when you're working for something and they're eating what you worked for. As the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. As my, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. You'll, you'll uh, kind of need to consider that. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. And it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be uh, the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So, Proverbs 18.13 says, we are completely out of line if we give an answer before we hear the question. Because, really, we're not equipped to do what God does. And, even worse, we're... Are we setting ourselves up in a mocking um, counterfeit? Are we setting ourselves up as if we could do what God can do in place of God? Do we think we know better than God? Is that why we're answering before we hear the question? What are we doing? How blasphemous is this? Daniel 9, verses 20 through 23. And maybe I'm giving you too many examples this morning. You say overkill, Pastor. I, you, you sold me two stories ago. <laughs> oh, but these are all good stories. And maybe uh, if you forget one of them, you can't forget all five of them. <laughs> all right. Daniel chapter 9. He's praying. And he gets up and he's praying. He's been praying and uh, as the chapter begins in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. He has lived the entire 70 year captivity. He was captured as a boy and he's 70 years older than he was. <laughs> and in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the book's the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he's in Bible study. He's reading the book of Jeremiah. When he was a boy, maybe he even met Jeremiah. We don't know. And in reading the Bible, has him convinced that he's got a problem. Israel has a problem. That the 70 years is up, it's time to go back to Jerusalem. However, the Jewish people are as rebellious as they've ever been. They have not repented, they have not learned their lesson. And here's Daniel wondering, how can God make good on his promises? Is he going to get them back to Jerusalem and then turn around and bring them back to, I mean, what's he going to do? How's he going to put them back in Jerusalem and then they're still rebellious? So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting sackcloth and ashes. Remember, a prophet could inquire of the Lord and get verbal answers. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness. There's chesed again. Why is it so many of these prayers are focused on the covenants and focused on God's chesed? He keeps His covenant and His loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Even Ezekiel, they were blowing him off. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the peoples of the land. And uh, we're still in rebellion. We're still in rebellion. You'll notice um, verse 8, open shame belongs to us. Uh, but to the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness for we have rebelled against Him nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord even to this day. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law. And uh, verse 12, thus He has confirmed His words. That's why we're in Babylon because God, you're faithful. And um, your word told us this would happen and this is what happened. And even now to this day we still have not repented. 
And so, um, verse 17, So now our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his supplications for your sake, O Lord. Let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, because we don't have any, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is a model prayer also. And I tell you, there's so much doctrine we can glean out of this for the doctrine of prayer. Now, um, verse 20, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision previously came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. We, can, we kind of read between the lines and presume that he started this at the morning offering. He started this prayer with the morning offering and now at the evening offering he's still praying and Gabriel arrives. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications the command was issued. At the beginning, all those hours ago, See, God knows what we need before we ask. And so when he started that morning's prayer, God said, all right, Gabriel, get going. And it takes a while. You know, he can't teleport. He's got to fly. He's got to get a a, a scale, an idea of how fast it takes Gabriel to go from 0 to 60 or 0 to 100. (laughs) All right. And, And by the way, this is also useful. So if it takes all day to get from heaven to earth, okay, if, if, if Gabriel can set out in the morning prayer and get there by the evening prayer, that gives you an idea because on a different occasion it actually takes him 21 days to get there. He gets, he gets kidnapped along the way. He gets waylaid by a fallen angel and held in, a, in an angel jail. And then Michael has to come and bust him out. And Anyway, it's kind of, kind of fun to think about these things. But at the beginning of your supplications the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. And this is what introduces the 77's prophecy. One of the deepest, most profound prophecies in the whole Bible. There's many other prophecies about Bethlehem, about the Virgin, about the Son of David, about all the other things. But none of those prophecies say when. This prophecy says when. This prophecy to the day announces the coming of the Christ. It's a marvelous, marvelous prophecy. All right, finally then, Luke 15. What do you think of when you think Luke 15? Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Same story, three different times. (laughs) Same doctrine, three different times. Three different illustrations. And here's the uh, the prodigal. And he's out there, he's miserable. He rehearses his speech. He plans out what he's going to say when he sees his father again. And... um, Verse 17 says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. That's the whole speech. He doesn't get through it all. He only gets through part of it, but that's his whole speech that he's prepared. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. You understand what this illustrates? Our God knows what we need before we ask. Our God is watching from a distance. Our God sees everything we're going through and he's been looking at it since the foundation of the world. He's planned every detail. He's planned every contingency. He knows every what if. His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, let's see how far he gets through this speech, right? Compare verse 18 to verse 21 here. Father, I have sinned against you and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now there was more that should have followed that. The, what He had also rehearsed, make me as one of your hired men. But the father didn't let him get that far. He cut him off. Halfway through his rehearsed speech, right? Like halfway through a Hamlet soliloquy or something, you know. He only got through the to be. He didn't get to the or not to be. And God jumped in there. Cut him off. Isn't that beautiful? So, <laughs> again, Proverbs eighteen thirteen: the one who gives an answer before he hears, obviously that doesn't include God. God God's free to do that. He is delighted to do that. He loves to do that. That's, uh, that's His blessing and glory to do, not, uh, not ours. So He cuts, cuts him off, said to the slaves, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Anyway, we should not be uh, giving these predetermined conclusions because we're not God and we don't know the end from the beginning. But God does. God knows what we need before we even ask. Now secondly, God's eternal wisdom and purpose is being manifest through the created realm of time. God's eternal wisdom and purpose is being manifest through the created realm of time. When we give an answer before it's asked, we are abusing God's created realm of time. God has created the realm of time to be linear, to be forward moving. And it is. It's been moving forward one day per day since day one. Sometimes it seems like it goes faster, but that's only our perspective. It still moves one day by one day by one day by one day. And uh, the fact that older people think it just whizzes by and younger people think it just drags on slower than anything, that is proof that we are the, the time creatures within the realm of time and God is, uh, is beyond all of that. He is the uh, outside of space and time. He, is, he sees all things from the end to the beginning. But nevertheless, God created a plan. He, God created an eternal plan. He has eternal wisdom and purpose and it's being manifest through the created realm of time, which means that there's an order for these things. It means that uh, the angels and the Gentiles and Israel and the church and the millennium and the fullness of time, they are progressing in the order He designed it. He has made His will known and Jesus Christ is executing it in perfect obedience to the Father. Remember, through whom also He created, the, He fashioned the ages. That's, that's Hebrews again, giving us these, these glorious truths. And so to unfold these things in a sequence means we should observe them in that sequence, we should appreciate them in that sequence, we should operate and function in that sequence, we should um, quit trying the, the, uh, to take every shortcut Satan throws at us, we should quit trying to speed up things. In other words, giving an answer before the question's even asked. A lot of things uh, that uh, when, when Satan tempts you, uh, like he tempted Jesus for the kingdom without the cross, he'll tempt us for all kinds of things, and the things might even be good things. But it's an alternate plan and program than what the Father would have. We're supposed to run with endurance the race that's set before us. And uh, when Satan says, oh, hey, i got a better race. This road is nicer. This road is shorter. This road is, you, you don't want to be running uphill all the time. Here's a downhill road. Take this one. And uh, you don't want to go to where that road's taking you. So let's understand this, that we are the time creatures and God is the eternal one. God is equipped to give an answer before it's asked. God is the one who knows what we need before we even ask. And when we attempt to usurp that, when we take it upon ourselves to determine what the outcome is going to be, who are we? Who are we? We don't know. 
Okay? We don't know. It'd be like that servant telling God which girl to make it. He didn't tell God which girl to make it. He asked God, which girl is it? You understand the difference? I think it's a big difference. He didn't just say, wow, here's a pretty one. All right, God, make her the right woman for Isaac. Just turn her into the right woman. Or change your plan. So whoever she was designed for before today, forget that, rewrite that. And, and God make her Isaac's bride. And then, you know, force God to adjust to our selfishness. As if somehow God's going to go, oh, oh, okay, you wanted her? Okay, I'm sorry. And then God will just kind of rearrange his plan and give her, and then take the girl that he really designed for Isaac and say, hmm, I guess I'll just, I guess I'll just swap out with the guy that, you know, that that girl should have gone to. No, God doesn't operate like that. Jesus says, not my will but thine be done. Don't cater to my needs. Don't adjust your plan to what I want to do. Adjust my wants to what your plan is. All right, Ephesians 3.11, if you need verses on this. Part of what we do in the church is that we exhibit the manifold wisdom of God. To be in the church age, I wouldn't trade the church age for anything. This is so marvelous. Not even the fullness of time, not even the thousand generations. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be uh, one of those thousand generations because um, to me the, the bride of Christ is the pinnacle here. So verse 8 says, To me the very least of all saints this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now in the church be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. In accordance with, notice, the eternal purpose. It's not plan B. He's not winging it. It's not something he came up with on the fly after Adam sinned. He said, oh wow, what do I come up with now? The whole sweep of everything from Alpha to Omega is his purpose, his eternal purpose, playing out from the alpha moment to the omega moment and every moment in between. The sovereignty of God glorifies his son in accordance with the eternal purpose which he, the Father, carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. What a privilege that we have. We go to the Father in prayer and we partake of his eternal purpose. Romans 16, 25 through 27. The benediction of the book of Romans. To him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God. Those fallen angels are posers. They're frauds. Satan was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty until he corrupted his wisdom by reason of his splendor. Every fallen angel who thinks that he can be like the most high God is lying to himself and everybody else. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. God's eternal wisdom and purpose is being manifest through the created realm of time. And so for humans or angels to presume such omniscience and omnisapience, I believe it is blasphemous. For humans or angels to presume such omniscience and omnisapience, that's all-knowing and all-wise. He's God all-knowing and He's God all-wise. And it's blasphemous. That's why Proverbs 18.13 says, don't give an answer before you hear. Proverbs 20 and verse 25. It is a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy, 
and after the vows to make inquiry. Oops. <laughs> In other words, you make a firm biblical answer and then you go home think, hmm, I better look that up. <laughs> well, you gave the answer. You gave the ruling. You know, is it a clean or an unclean animal? It's clean. Go ahead and eat it. Wait a minute. Let me go look at that. Where was that again? Leviticus 11? Let me find out. After the vows to make inquiry. We can't, you know, we, we just have to admit we're finite. We're creatures of time. We're, we've got to get things in the right order. Learn the truth and speak the truth. John seven fifty one. The crowd's getting all riled up, and uh, the uh, Sanhedrin had sent officers to arrest them. The officers showed up and said, well, we couldn't do it. Uh, the Pharisees said, why did you not bring him? The officer said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees answered, well, you've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Uh, hello, Nicodemus has. But the crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to him, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? <laughs> How do you conduct a trial until you've heard the witnesses, and unless you've heard this accused and what his defense is? You know, How do you hold an impeachment hearing if there's no <laughs> whistleblower? All right. How do you give an answer before you've heard the question? How do you give a verdict before the evidence has been submitted? Right? What's the line from Alice in uh, Wonderland? Off with their heads and then it's uh, verdict first, then, then trial? Been too, I hadn't read that in ages. I need to reread that. All right. Isaiah 45. I've got to close with this. I'm over time. Isaiah is a taunt. God himself is taunting. And he's taunting the fallen angels. He's telling them what they can't do because they're not him. I am the Lord, there is none else. That's verse 18. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. He's talking to fallen angels when he says that. Draw near together, you fugitive of the nations. Fugitives, plural, of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. You want to be an idol worshiper? It's a waste of time. What can those idols do for you? Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. This is where he's taunting. He's even inviting all of them to cooperate. Go ahead, you know, put your heads together, pull your resources, make this a group project, if you will, because every fallen angel all put together can't do what God does. Let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? who has long since declared it. Is it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Yeah, they cannot. They cannot recount it. They cannot recount it in order. They cannot. God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. He is the one that knows the end from the beginning. They can't do it even if they work together. I think the... Uh... Anyway, I'm out of time. It's a very similar text in chapter 44. There's a very similar cha uh, text in chapter 43. And all of them are taunts from the Lord God mocking the fallen angels, mocking the false gods of the Gentiles. 
God is the one, not us. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for Proverbs 18, 13. I pray that we learn the lessons, that none of us would give an answer before we hear, that we humble ourselves before you in every prayer request, in every ministry, in uh, all that we think, say, and do. Let us uh, hear your will first, and then uh, go forth in obedience. I thank you and praise you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.